Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. All right, welcome back to the show today. Now, this is something that has not happened before. All three of my regular co-hosts are not even here. A couple of them are on vacation. And um, so we have Pastor Paul Luer, which is one of the pastors at the Well Church, with us again today. Brother, how are you? I'm well. I'm glad to be here. And then we actually have uh, Pastor Matt Marino. He actually planted the Well Church, gosh, 2007? 2007, yep. And um, the man responsible for discipling me, so if you don't like me, you send all your hate mail to him, and he will correspond with it uh, appropriately, right? (laughs) Absolutely, in a very winsome manner. (laughs) Real quick, where are you at these days? I'm associate pastor uh, with Jonathan at uh, Dayspring URC, and I uh, actually got the chance to uh, preach at the uh, Cloverdale URC yesterday, and will again uh, next Sunday morning as well. But uh, yep, doing that, and I'm doing Ask Ligonier Chats every day. That's a fun job. That's my day job. And then just uh, halfway through my doctorate at uh, Puritan. Nice. It's exciting stuff. Yeah. Real quick, we got to plug the conference coming up September 17th and 18th. It is uh, our Boise Reformation Conference. Uh, Dr. Robert Godfrey, Dr. Terry Johnson, the theme is Be Thou My Vision. We're going to be talking about worship. If you go to ReformationBoise.com, you can find all the details there and register for free. So, brothers, we are in the middle of a series on sovereignty. I know it's been, I think, a couple weeks since we've been in the studio, but we're going to continue that theme. And so, for your sake, Matt, I suppose we should try to define our terms, but this is how I'll I'll introduce the subject. So, you remember that uh, line from... um, the Princess Bride, when he keeps on using that word inconceivable, and, and then Inigo Montoya says, I don't think that word means what you think it means. So when Reformed theology teaches about God's sovereignty, do you, do you think that there's, that's different than what the popular notion of God's sovereignty is today found in evangelicalism? Certainly within the church, because most Christians that you know have grown up in the church traditions in America, that comes a lot from... Uh, Wesleyanism and from the Second Great Awakening, all the different groups that emerged during the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. And a lot of them were very anti-Calvinistic. That's certainly the case with Charles Finney and some of those groups. So what a lot of people learned about Calvinism and about divine sovereignty was that it is of a tyrant and uh, that it makes God out to be a moral monster, that it makes reality out to be deterministic, if people use those phrases at all. But those are the kind of things people have in mind. And of course, hyper-Calvinism didn't help and still doesn't help. And I hate that term because hyper-Calvinism suggests too much Calvinism (laughs) or Calvinism on steroids. Actually, hyper-Calvinism shares assumptions with ancient Pelagianism. It just plucks off the tulip certain points and says, well, if God wanted to save the infidel, he'd have, say, he'd have sent somebody, or he'd have done this or that. And so you don't do missions or whatever else it is. 
So you wind up living up to the caricature. But that's what it is. It's a caricature of God as a tyrant and as um, having his arms folded at the gates of heaven, keeping people out that want to come in and uh, all that stuff. Paul, what do you think? I mean, you've you've grown up in popular evangelicalism, and, and now you have a very Reformed understanding of God's sovereignty. How, how does a typical non-Reformed person view, because they, they would affirm God is sovereign, but they're kind of pouring a different definition into that word. Right, right. Um, I You know, one of the things that I've come across a lot is the idea that God is sovereign, but in large areas of the universe and of um, the, the, so both the, the physical and the spiritual realm, God has withheld his sovereignty. He has abdicated that or decided to, to not exercise a sovereignty that he otherwise uh, would be able to. Um, so that's, that's maybe uh, one step better than um, somebody who's heard the word sovereignty, understands what it means, would affirm it at some level, but has never even thought about it much. Uh, so that's so in other words, of, he's a, God's kind of a deist type of God in certain areas, and in other areas he exercises his lordship and kingship. Correct, correct. You see this in open theist authors, whether it's Gregory Boyd or... What's the other guy? John Sanders and a Clark Pinnock and other people, but they would speak like this, and even it's humorous language. It, now, are we talking strong sovereignty or weak sovereignty? <laughs> what is it like a square circle or like a mostly dead, slightly alive? If you want to <laughs> go back to Princess Bride, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's either sovereign, sovereign, or it's not sovereign. Yeah, yeah. And of course, one of the difficulties, I remember one of our favorite authors, uh, Shed, he talks about real precisely that. If, if there's even one area that God is not sovereign, that thing falls back to the dust because by definition, creation is not a self-sufficient thing. Mm-hmm. That's why scripture says that God upholds all things by the word of his power. Mm-hmm. And so the minute God lets go of something, that thing ceases to exist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, let's talk about, um, let's apply God's sovereignty to, to a really easy area, reprobation. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and we already covered some of the other things. So uh, what is reprobation, and how does God exercise his sovereignty over the eternal destination of the reprobate? Well, it starts in the divine decree. And strictly speaking, as Charles Hodge and others have pointed out, there's a singular decree. We speak about the decrees of God in the plural, and it's appropriate to do that when you're speaking about certain things. You're distinguishing providence versus creation versus miracles and so forth, and that's fine. But ultimately, God is um, temporal. It's an aspect of his eternity. Uh, He's simple, that is, he's non-composite. And there's all these other attributes that speak in ways that demand that the divine decree is singular and that it is the cause of all things. If we want some verses for it, Ephesians 1.11, Romans 11.26, Daniel 4.35. These are passages that speak to God as all you could say omni-causal, even that's uh, because we want to, and we'll talk about it later, primary and secondary cause. But for now, there's a decree. And when the decree is specifically focusing on salvation, there's two sides to it. People get nervous of this. Double pre... Oh, I believe in predestination, but you're not one of those guys that believes in double predestination. Well, double predestination simply means that God elected a certain number to be saved. That's we what we call predestination. But on the other hand, he passed over others 
He does so just as intentionally. Well, people are recoiling. Well, there's a lot there. But one of the things they're recoiling from at that moment is something that is better called, as R.C. Sproul called it, um, equal ultimacy. Mm -hmm. So they have in their minds that by double predestination, uh, God takes this lump of clay that's suspended neutrally in midair. They go either way. But God takes one group and he throws them down to hell. And then he takes the other group and he throws them up toward heaven. So he's creating something, a good principle and a bad principle in the same way. That's not what double predestination means. Instead, as Romans 9 speaks of this lump of clay, it's all falling a billion miles an hour away from God. And so God doesn't have to create a, an evil principle in the non-elect or in mm -hmm. the reprobate. Instead, that decree issues forth in this way, that God creates a new principle in those that he's predestined, and he regenerates them, or he brings them to life, and the others he passes over. Yeah. And so he confirms, it's called judicial hardening. He he withdraws his grace from them, and they go, since we love free will, he, they go by their own free will, their own nature, away from God, and hating God, which is all of our natures before he made us born again. Yeah. Well, in John 3, uh, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men have loved the darkness because their their deeds are evil. I think, you know, one of the harder harder verses in Romans nine is that that place where talking about God's election and reprobation, uh, he's talking about Jacob and Esau. And to show that God's election is unconditional, he says, you know, before they were born, before they were uh, have done either anything good or bad, um, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And, you know, Many of us, our, our gut reaction is, ooh, that, that makes God look like, like a tyrant, or that makes God look um, harsh or severe. Um, but, but the truth is, is that as we look at this verse, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, we shouldn't be shocked that God hated Esau, and you can define that in a moment, but uh, we should be shocked that God loved Jacob. There was nothing in Jacob that would have merited God's love, that would have made Jacob more lovable to God for God to choose him. Both of these men as you use that, that imagery of fallen clay, are equally wicked. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And equally deserving of God's wrath. And so there's a love issue and there's a justice issue. And, and some people conflate those and saying, well, if God were all loving, then you must love all. And if God were just, he must do such and such. Justice is easier to see at this point. And there's the famous statement, if you're Reformed, by R.C. Sproul in his book, Chosen by God, he says this very, you'll recognize this, he says, the saved get mercy and the unsaved get justice. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets injustice. Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's the first point is that by rights, if we want to talk about justice, because of the depths of our sin, because of his infinite holiness, what justice would demand is that all human beings yeah. born to Adam would be justly sentenced to hell. That's right. That's that's why Romans nine is 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 one of the diff, most difficult passages in Scripture. Not not so much because it it deals with God's sovereignty, although that's that's very difficult. But it actually puts us square in the mirror of our own sin. This is me. I deserve what Esau got. I deserve what Pharaoh got. And to have any other view, yeah, is unbiblical. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I deserve the same thing. Mm -hmm. And every single person who falls within the hearing, yeah. everybody 
whether they hear this or not, if the, you know, the, the radio waves that are falling upon people, whether their radio is tuned in or not, they are Esau. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you received some questions um, on Ligonier uh, often on this topic of reprobation. What are people's, uh, you know, main objections against it? That's the main one that it's not fair. Uh, but then sometimes it'll shift to the the loving objection that if God is all loving, that he must do this or that. And at that point, though they're not really ready for apologetics or comparative religion, I hate to tell them, but we have to do some comparing of religion, namely biblical Christianity, to the religion that you're coming with here, yeah. because it's not Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's not even monotheism. Yeah. And here's why. If you say that God is all loving, And by that, I mean that he must, his love must. All loving means one-to-one correspondence, the creator to the creature. The objects of my love must be infinite. My love must be as infinite as the the amount of objects. Well, then you're saying that divine love is owing itself to the creature, that it's Mm -hmm. defined by the creature, that it's caused by the creature, that the love of God is something that is shaped by that which he makes, which means that he is not love until or unless... The creature demands that, extracts that from him. Mm-hmm. That's not even monotheism anymore. Yeah, yeah. If you want to, you know, just to plug a book here at the end, um, D.A. Carson wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, and he posits essentially five different understandings of, of God's love, and it's a pretty thin book. Uh, so if you're struggling with, well, how can God be sovereign and loving, I would commend that book to you. I think it's very helpful. Any other resources real quick before we... Finished today? Just Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul would be a good start. And, and then, of course, uh, A.W. Pink's classic, The Sovereignty of God. Um, he does have a whole section at the end that answers some of those objections. I think it's pretty helpful. All right. Well, thanks, brothers, for being on the show today. Uh, we're going to pick up this topic tomorrow. Don't forget to go to ReformationBoise.com, and you can sign up for our upcoming conference. It is two months earlier this year, so you don't want to sign up too late. September 17th and 18th. We'll see you next time. 